Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. A reminder again, there is an outline handout on the back table, if that's helpful for you. We'll be in verses 29 through 34 of Genesis 25. Right from the beginning of the service, we've been singing about how we praise the God of Abraham because he's not just Abraham's, he's our God. And in him we inherit all things. We have a heavenly inheritance in him, an eternal inheritance. And in the book of Genesis, as we've been walking through it, we've seen God's great and precious promises to and through Abraham and Abraham's offspring. These promises are being passed down from Abraham to his child of promise, Isaac. And now... Through Isaac, to his sons, and particularly it will be one of his sons. We saw last week at the end that Jacob's wife, Rebecca was barren until the Lord opened her womb. And I just want to read verses 21 through 28 to review, first of all, from last week. In Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. Some have translated that they were crushing one another within her. (laughs) Or they were fighting together. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Uh, The rest of Genesis will in one way or another be concerned with Jacob and, and largely also with his brother Esau in some way or other. In our sermon text for today, The next verse is closing out this chapter. We will see a fateful and revealing exchange between these two men after they've grown up. Their hearts are put on display with vast implications for their futures. They're both sinners, Jacob and Esau, and yet they're still two very different people. Let's read verses 29 through 34. This is uh, pretty short, pretty brief for a sermon text from Genesis, but I think it's important to camp on this brief uh, account today. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. 
Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. As we look at the account of these few verses, first of all, we see the hunter and the cook. And of course, this is just uh, flowing out from what was said in the last few verses about what these men were like once they had grown up. Esau was a man of the field, a skillful hunter. And Isaac, his father, loved him because Isaac loved the food that Esau brought in. Esau was a good hunter and uh, Isaac liked good meat from the field. But Jacob... Uh, he was not this man that his brother was, always on the move, um, a man of, of action and uh, out of the elements all the time. He stayed closer to home. He was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And as we said last week, that may also have a connotation of being a little more level-headed and uh, quiet, contemplating at his best, quiet and scheming at his worst, you could say. But Esau, the hunter, comes in from the field, and it doesn't tell us exactly whether or not he was successful in his hunting, which is apparently what he was out doing in the field. What it does tell us is Esau came in exhausted, physically spent. Now he exaggerates that later, of course, as if he's about to die. He's not about to die, as becomes evident. But he is exhausted. And he has some, uh, he has a strong craving that comes on because of it, as we'll see. Jacob is the cook. He's staying close to the tents, uh, seeing that uh, a meal is made. It's lentil stew, apparently, and they usually had bread with whatever they were eating for the meal. So later it says that he would give Esau bread and lentil stew. That's what was on the menu. Um doesn't mention there's meat in here. Sounds like a pretty vegetarian meal, but it, it sure looked good to Esau when he came in exhausted. So the hunter and the cook leads us to verses 30 through 31, the craving and the offer. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, meaning red. <laughs> Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Many speculate, and that's all it is. It's just speculation. We can't know whether uh, this had been a topic of conversation before between the two boys or men at this point, trading the birthright. We have interesting accounts outside the Bible from the ancient Near East, for instance, of a man um, selling his birthright for a sheep. <laughs> um, it was transferable, possibly. We don't know what had transpired between Jacob and Esau before this point, but for some reason, Jacob gets the idea that this may be a, a way to successfully get the birthright from his brother. But it opens up with Esau uh, saying, it, it doesn't really come out in the English as well, um, 
not just let me eat some of that red stew. He says, literally, you could say, let me greedily swallow some of that red stew. Um, as John Curran mentions, this verb appears nowhere else in Scripture, but it clearly carries the idea of gulping down. Um, the Mishnah, some other Jewish writings, use that Hebrew term for feeding cattle. Uh, it demonstrates Esau is simply an uncouth glutton. And in the Hebrew, Esau, he repeats, he, Esau demands, red stuff, red stuff. Um, he wants the stew and he wants it now. That's the idea. And the Hebrew term for red stuff is Adom. So that's where he gets his name, Edom. So he's impatient. He's, uh, all he wants is that red stew. He's like, just give me the red stuff. Give it to me. Let me gulp some of that stuff down. And Jacob says, not so fast. I want your birthright. You want something? I want something. You think this is so all important right now? I made it. You didn't. Give me your birthright. Again, John Currid, the one with the right of the firstborn, that birthright, had preferential status in the family. First, he would receive a double portion of the inheritance. At least that's uh, true later in the law of Moses, and it was true as a law that was well known in other cultures of the time. And secondly, the right meant that when the father died, the firstborn would assume headship of the family structure. And remember, in this context, this isn't just any birthright. This is Abraham and Isaac's birthright. This is being the head of the promised, or put it this way, the head of the family of promise, of God's promise. This had everything to do with God's plans of redemption for the world. This had everything to do with all God had promised to Abraham and his offspring. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This was no ordinary birthright. This was, this was extra sacred, given the promises to Abraham. But Esau didn't care. He didn't care. He was all about the moment. What he wants right now. He wasn't thinking, you know, even 20, 30 years down the road, let alone beyond that. Something else interesting here, as Andrew Steinman puts it, in these four verses, the word birthright occurs, occurs four times. Not only is it a theme for the struggle between the two brothers, but it also forms an anagram in Hebrew with the word blessing. An anagram is where you have the same letters just rearranged. Uh, so the word for birthright is um, burakah. No, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't say that right. Um, I switched that around with blessing. Anyway, the two words, they sound very much alike in Hebrew. But um, it, it, it makes you think when you hear it in Hebrew of the word blessing as well. And uh, the next time we hear about Jacob and Esau, chapter 27, the theme will be getting Isaac's blessing that's attached to the birthright. Again, the blessing will acknowledge the principal heir and seal the birthright of divine promises given to Isaac's father, Abraham. So we have a contest between Esau's craving and Jacob's offer of an exchange. 
Then we have an exaggeration and an oath. Verse 32, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Think that's a little exaggerated? You think in their tribe that he was coming back to in their tents, no one else had any food for Esau? Only Jacob was cooking supper (laughs) for this whole clan? I doubt that. But Esau saw what he wanted right in front of him. That red stew, that's what I need right now. It's like if someone if someone suggests tacos for supper and you're like, nope, I've already made it up my mind. I need a cheeseburger. <laughs> it's just what he was craving at the moment. But he says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? He exaggerates his, his condition. I need this. And so Jacob says, he knows his, his brother's full of hot air and bluster. He, wa- he wants an oath. He wants his brother to swear an oath to him. If you're serious, swear, swear to me that I have your birthright. Again, the commentator says, Esau's reply is an expression of his careless and indifferent attitude. Apparently, he attaches no importance to the rich promises of God through Abraham, Isaac, and their descendants. He's short-sighted and materialistic. He's living for the immediate gratification of his physical desires. The things seen mean more to him than the promises of God. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews calls Esau an immoral and godless person. Hebrews twelve sixteen. So you know what? Esau says, fine, I'll swear the oath to you. So then we have this casual exchange, beginning at verse 34. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. The way that's worded there is very casual. Okay, fine. It's done. Matthew Henry says something that others have said very similarly before, too. But he he put it this way. He said, as dear a morsel as ever was eaten since the forbidden fruit. (laughs) Selling your birthright for a bowl of stew and some bread. It's interesting that the serpent lied to the woman, Genesis 3, saying that she would not die if she ate the fruit. Esau lied to himself, saying that he would die if he couldn't eat the food. This is so pathetic. You're supposed to to understand that. This is a pathetic situation. This casual exchange. And then it it just um, has one last comment, just to be sure you get the point here. As we'll see, Jacob has his own issues here, of course. But the point of this little account is mostly about Esau. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. The brazen disregard for his birthright. He despised it. He disregarded it. He he looked at it and said, why do I need that? I have other things I want. So as Richard Belcher says, Esau is a crass man driven by his passions, who acts on the impulse of the moment. 
Jacob, on the other hand, is a devious man who takes advantage of his brother's weakness to get the birthright for himself. He's a schemer who will turn a situation to his advantage to get what he wants. So again, we're not letting Jacob off the hook. It's just that the longer the story goes, the more hard knocks God gives Jacob to change him. (laughs) And we'll see Jacob, the schemer, get out-schemed at times. But Esau's a crass man. Any, any honorable man would not even thought for a moment about this offer Jacob makes. But Jacob knew his brother. He knew what his brother was like. He thought, this will work. And he was right. Meredith Klein even makes, uh, speaking about Jacob again, Meredith Klein makes a little comment that's interesting. He says, Jacob's seeking to purchase by works the gift of grace betrayed his need of conversion to the way of faith. I think there's something there. So I might like better how Alan Ross puts it. He says, The fact that what Jacob strongly desired was worth desiring makes him the more pleasing of the two. But there is a danger in such spiritual ambition. The lesson for the household of faith should be to seek the things of spiritual value, to be sure, But those who earnestly desire spiritual possessions must not seek to attain them through base means. That's what Jacob is doing here. It was good to desire the birthright. It was very wrong of him to instigate such a a lousy exchange and to tempt his brother to sell this blessing so cheaply. Reminds me a little bit of Simon the Magician in Acts 8 who sees the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, and he offers them money to buy God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And and Peter strongly rebukes him, saying, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. As we go further in the story of Genesis, we'll see Jacob does get the birthright and God's blessing at first, he may think it's because he has outwitted his brother and he's out-schemed everybody. And because his mother's schemed too. Uh, Rebecca had her schemes going on here. But the farther we go in Genesis, the more Jacob will find out, this isn't something that I got just because of my wits. It's something God in his grace, despite all my sin, <laughs> is gifting to me. But that's... We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there. As Derek Kidner says, if Jacob is ruthless here, Esau is feckless. Again, the versions have toned down his spluttering. Let me gulp some of the red stuff, this red stuff. Embracing the present and the tangible at any cost, going through with the choice and walking away unconcerned, incidentally far from dead, in spite of what he said in the beginning of verse 32, he earned the epithet of Hebrews twelve sixteen, a profane person. The chapter does not comment, so Jacob supplanted his brother, but so Esau despised his birthright. Let's go to Hebrews 12 and see the larger context of what it says there about Esau. Hebrews 12, verse 14, first of all.
The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were being tempted to forsake their birthright and blessing in Christ, to turn their backs, at least to some degree, on Jesus as Messiah, so they could hold on to the rest of their Jewish family and heritage, and so they would not be disowned and persecuted. And they, um, some of them had, had shown themselves weak in the face of temptation. And so Hebrews is urging perseverance on them, perseverance in their faith, and in clinging to Christ by faith. And so Hebrews 12:14 says, "Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." That's right after it said you have to uh, you shouldn't um, either despise the chastening of the Lord or faint when reproved by him. But you need to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Work hard at your sanctification. Verse 15. See to it the ideas of oversight, looking over the church, um, looking over each other, watching over each other. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, or you could just say a fornicator. Some say that that's literal here. I tend to think it's more spiritual fornications that's being talked about, but it says that no one be a fornicator or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And before we fully unfold that, I have one other text to take you to, a cross-reference here. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 16. Because when it says, it's warning that a root of bitterness could spring up in the church, causing trouble, defiling many. Uh, And then the parallel idea is someone could be uh, immoral and profane or unholy like Esau. What's it talking about? What is this root of bitterness? Well, it's not simply the bitterness of harbored resentment. That's not what it's talking about here. A root of bitterness here is a stubborn heart, which eventually bears the bitter, poisonous fruit of idolatry and apostasy. Because Hebrews 12 is referring to to Deuteronomy 29 and what God had told Israel about a root of bitterness that could spring up among them. Deuteronomy 29, verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And that, in the Greek Old Testament, is what Hebrews is quoting, the root of bitterness. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, 
blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The idea is the root that bears this evil fruit will eventually bring destruction to all the other plants, all the surrounding plants, whether moist or dry. Verse 20. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity, in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And then it goes on to say, as a result of such such apostates, the whole land would become like Sodom and Gomorrah, burned out by God's curse. And so the passage concludes down in verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We must heed the word of God, lest our hearts become stubborn, lest some of us to prove to not be true believers, but to have despised our birthright and eventually be willing to sell it for so much less. So Hebrews 12 says Esau was such a root of bitterness. He was certainly in general um, an immoral man, though Scripture doesn't specifically speak of sexual immorality in his case. He did marry later some wives that were ungodly. But spiritually, Esau was a fornicator. He... um, He didn't value faithfulness to God and to the covenant God had given his father Abraham. And he was unholy. He was profane. He didn't value the things of God. So he sold his birthright for a single meal. So, the big idea, I think, from this text is this. Beware your passions which would trade the holy for the trivial. You know what something is that's trivial? It's of little consequence. Something that doesn't really matter that much in the big scheme of things. It's trivial. It's light. It's not worth much. Beware your passions, which would trade the holy for the trivial. And we have all sorts of passions as humans and as sinners, don't we? Sometimes people have a very limited, uh, they have a very limited scope of things that come to mind when they hear the word passions. Um, Think broadly, scripturally. Any urge, desire, craving that drives you, (laughs) that's a passion. Anything. So beware your passions, which would trade the holy for the trivial. So let's unfold the application a bit, shall we? First of all, our profane passions, profane meaning they are unholy and they despise what is holy, our profane passions will try to hide behind distorted necessity. What do I mean? Esau claimed he was about to die of hunger. That was a distorted necessity. Of course he needed food at some point. 
That didn't mean he needed that food right then. But so often our profane passions will hide behind distorted necessity. We've distorted in our minds what we really need. And so that's our excuse to, to pursue what we want. What do you pretend that you need when you simply crave it? Money? Respect? Relaxation? Perhaps you do need what you're seeking, but you don't need it at this time or in this way. You might be in need of companionship, but not this companion. You might need a job, but not this job. You might need a place of Christian service, but not in the position you crave. We often confuse the needs of the body and soul with the desires of our eyes. We see it, so we think we need it. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon, or you could say something like, death and destruction, are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. The eyes of sinners are like the very pit of hell in their insatiable desire for more. So we find ourselves, sometimes even in prayer, saying, quick, give me the red stuff, the red stuff, now, I need it. Oh, really? You need it? That's what James says, James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. That is, you figuratively murder other people. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But then he adds this, even in our prayer life. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God, I need this. And I'm going to be so disappointed if I don't have this. I need it. You know I need it, God. And we're out of line. That should alert us. We, we should stop ourselves in our tracks. Say, wait a minute. What am I craving here that I will not be denied? Our profane passions will try to hide, they will hide behind distorted necessity. Second, our profane passions will blind us to our dreadful guilt. They'll blind us to our dreadful guilt. A stubborn heart hardens itself to the point of casual wickedness. We can do wicked things and not give a second thought about it. Esau swore a terrible oath. And he gulped down his bread and stew and he walked away as if nothing had happened. He was so casual about it. it. Reminds me of Proverbs 30, verse 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. That's how sinners are with their sin, right? When they get to a certain point of shamelessness. So let me pause here and just say, if your conscience 
plagues you for the sin you've just committed, that's a reason to rejoice. And repent while you may. If your conscience is bothering you, use that to stop yourself. But if you simply resent the pangs of conscience, you're like, just stop it. I'm going to do this anyway. Well, you may sear your conscience until you cannot be alarmed about anything you do. We all can think of people, whether we know them personally or not, maybe they're just in the news, you know, serial killers or whoever, and we can think of people that we, that we cannot understand how they could do the evil things they, they do and seem to not even feel anything. You know how they do that? They kept traveling the road of sin, and when conscience said something, they shushed it until they can't hear it anymore. Not much, at least. And you can get there, too, apart from God's grace, just in your natural state. If God allows you to go your own way far enough, if you keep saying no to your conscience, that's what happens to sinners. And by the way, that should help us understand more, though we cannot comprehend it, more of the justice of hell, because when God leaves sinners to themselves, they're exceedingly wicked. And their hearts are hard. Matthew Henry said on this text here, he said, Note, people are ruined not so much by doing what is amiss, what's wrong, as by doing it and not repenting of it, doing it and standing to it. He's talking about how Esau, he had no second thoughts apparently about this whole thing. He just did it and went his way. He didn't care. And speaking now to Christians specifically, to believers, if you earnestly sorrow for your sin and you plead with God for a changed heart, don't despair. That's often the devil's temptation to us when we have sinned to... to get so down because because of our sin, but so down that we forget about God's grace at work within us. So if you're earnestly sorrowing over your sin and pleading with God for a changed heart, don't despair. It's not just you. It's God himself who's warring against your sin and your passions. That's the evidence. He hasn't left you to your sin. If you have real sorrow for it, he's working in you. He's at work. He's on your side in this war against sin. You may grieve over your hardness of heart, but God has not allowed you to be hardened beyond remedy. So the answer is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A third application. Our profane passions trade eternal glory for immediate satisfaction. The Geneva Bible, back in the 1500s, had a note here on this text, and it said, The reprobate, meaning Esau, do not value God's benefits unless they feel them presently, and therefore they prefer present pleasures. Thus the wicked prefer their worldly conveniences over God's spiritual graces, but the children of God do the opposite. 
Yes, that's right. Our profane passions trade, they trade eternal glory for immediate satisfaction. What I can get now. Now certainly, if there's no such thing as eternal glory, then immediate satisfaction makes all the sense in the world. But that's the big lie. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection and eternal life to come, why are we doing all this? 1 Corinthians 15.30 Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, like Esau. For tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What Paul is saying is, once you find yourself, Christian, having the eat and drink, because tomorrow I'll die attitude, realize you've been badly influenced by bad company. It's ruined your good morals. Life is not about everything I can get for myself now, in this moment. The best food, the best drink, the fastest car, the best house, the best reputation, and so on. That's not what this life is about for a Christian. Because we believe in eternity, in eternal things. We're not, we're not products of mindless evolution where, oh, look at this. Look at all these bags of chemicals fizzing around and doing all these interesting things. And we're all going to die, so nothing we do matters anyway. Let's just get what we can now. That's often the pagan world's view of things. That's not the Christian view of things. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he has, whatever gain he had in earthly terms, earthly respectability, even in the sense of religion as a, as a pious Jew, whatever gain Paul had, he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. That's Philippians 3, 7. And next he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as really garbage or dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so next he says... I'm focusing on that, and he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus have made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, forgetting the things of this earth that I've given up and just looking toward heaven, Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Later in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. You all should have this attitude that I have, setting everything aside for Christ in this life. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and in the context, he's probably even talking about religious teachers. He says, many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He can tell what people are really about. Their minds are set on earthly things, and thus their end is destruction, because they don't love Jesus Christ. They don't, their life is not all about faith in Christ. Their God is their belly. It's a way of saying, in the Greek, the idea of your passions, your, your drives. <laughs> their God is their own passions. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is not here. And remember, that theme has been coming through Genesis. Abraham knew he wasn't a citizen here. He was a pilgrim. Isaac knew that. Now we get to Esau. And he thinks it's all about the here and now. His God is his belly. And so, the things of God, he doesn't care. But my last point of application is that God's grace can replace our profane passions with holy pursuits. There really is more. It's not just that there really is more, but God can change us because if we're all honest with ourselves, we all are born into this world like Esau to some extent. At, at the root of everything, we want what we want now. We have profane passions. We're driven by pride, by greed, by extreme selfishness. But God's grace can change all that. It can give us holy pursuits. But remember, Christian, as you look at the worldling who's so obviously driven by their base passions, remember it's only by God's grace in Christ that you are an heir of eternal glory, no longer enslaved to those passions and pleasures. We were all like that once. As Paul says, Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Oh, by the way, you who've grown up in a Christian home and you're like, I, don't, I didn't really feel like that was my experience before Christ. Well, you had a lot of common grace in your home. But left to yourself, that's exactly where you'd be. We were all like that in our hearts, even if our environment held us back a bit. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So first of all, don't start being driven by your pride again, thinking that, that you're better than all these dumb sinners who pursue dumb things. But then, are we living consistently in light of this eternal inheritance, in light of God's grace to us in Christ? Jesus spoke to his disciples who were so, like us, they, they were still so prone to worry and fret about the things they thought they might not get in this life. <coughs> Even necessities. Matthew 6.31, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. First Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These are holy pursuits. Things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. But friend, you can't have this eternal life. You can't have these holy and eternal things while loving your sinful passions. You have to let them go. Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How many people like Esau, like he did in this life even, will look back one day in the fires of hell. And though they will not have repentant hearts, truly repentant hearts, they will still be hardened in their sin, yet they'll look back with remorse. 
I was told how to inherit all things in Christ, and I refused it. Because I had to have my sin. Don't be one of those people. Now, if you say, there's no hope for me because I can't change who I am. Well, you got got it partly right. (laughs) You can't change who you are, but Jesus can. Remember, as we just read, the water of life is priceless. It's given without payment. The gospel is not make yourself better for Jesus. The gospel is entrust yourself to Jesus. He will forgive you and transform you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I close with some lines from a hymn by Charles Wesley. Ye slaves of sin and hell, your liberty receive, and safe in Jesus dwell, and blessed in Jesus live. Ye who have sold for naught your heritage above, receive it back unbought, the gift of Jesus' love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word, clumsily as it's been delivered. Please help us to value the things that have eternal worth. In a word, help us to value Christ. Christ crucified and risen from the dead, in whom we inherit all things, because he lived a perfect life in the place of sinners, and he died the death they deserved. And he rose to give them eternal life. And Lord, if you've drawn us to Christ in faith, we are assured that we inherit all things in him. But please help those of us who do have this inheritance not to belittle it in our minds. Help us not to resent faithfulness to you because we think we're missing out on something else that we want. And, Lord, as we ask Sunday after Sunday, please convince in their hearts people who are without Christ that he is worth losing everything else if necessary. Especially, he is worth them losing their sins. Please help sinners who are enslaved to their, their own passions, their own desires, Please set them free as your spirit applies the gospel to their hearts. We know we are so enslaved to our sins that we will not turn from them unless you change our hearts. So we ask you to do this work among us today. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.